Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, Georgia Congresswoman Nakima Williams joins me for a discussion on the role of women in lawmaking and how that impacts our nation's overall state of democracy. Looking forward to that conversation. Plus, Dr. Natalie Hernandez from the Morehouse School of Medicine on the institution's efforts to narrow the maternal health inequity gap. And also this. We always go to the waterfall. There's a peaceful and healing nature to the waters flowing. It's been it's been a wonderful thing. I mean, you know, I've lost weight doing it. I have gotten more physically fit. But most of all, I had a way during the pandemic of not being isolated or depressed. A story about sisterhood formed during this pandemic. All that's just ahead. But first this, let's start with the weather. The National Weather Service is tracking a line of storms stretching across the south and through central Georgia. Now, Lindsay Hochstetter is a meteorologist at the service's Peachtree, Center, Peachtree City office. This line of storms has been associated with several reports of pea to dime-sized hail um, and gusts to a 40 to 45 miles per hour. So it's a little bit below severe criteria, but it has been um, producing some pretty gusty winds as it's passed through. Now, Hochstetter says a second wave of storms could lead to severe weather this afternoon. Now, the National Weather Service expects the worst of the storms to hit south central Georgia, but it could have impacts for southern metro Atlanta. There's a potential that we start to see some isolated severe thunderstorms develop this afternoon, and those would be associated with a greater potential of producing tornadoes and larger hail than what we've seen this morning. But it's going to depend on how quickly or if we clear out behind this initial line of storms. And if you're out driving as the rain picks up, here's a reminder that should sound familiar. We could see some ponding on the roads and some flash flooding. So never drive into floodwaters and just be on the lookout for, like I said, some small hail and the potential for some damaging winds, and make sure you have multiple ways to receive warnings if we issue them. Always some good tips to remember. In other news, Georgia School District will be able to use federal stimulus money to cover the rising cost of fuel. State education officials asked the U.S. Education Department to clarify whether districts could use the funds for transportation. The department said the money could go toward fuel costs as long as as it's related to COVID-19 and is reasonable and necessary. State School Superintendent Richard Woods says the ability to use federal funds to cover fuel costs will help districts support students' academic recovery. Lead has been found in the soil on Atlanta's west side that the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is moving forward so much that the cleanup is part of the Superfund, is now on the Superfund National Priorities List. Federal officials are making the announcement today, and WABE's Lily Oppenheimer has more. Nearly all the homes in the English Avenue and Vine City neighborhoods will be added to the EPA's priorities list for cleanup. The designation is given to sites where contamination poses a significant health risk to people. In 2018, an Emory research team found elevated lead levels in soil samples in the neighborhoods and also discovered that industrial smelting waste called slag was just sitting on vacant lots. Researchers say they've listened to residents' stories of watching kids climb on top of the waste for decades, treating it like a kind of slag playground. As of this March, the EPA found dangerous lead levels in nearly a thousand properties there. Nearly 400 of them require the soil to be fully replaced. The EPA says 116 properties have been cleaned up so far. 
Lily Oppenheimer, WABE News. And finally, there will be a lot of Chandler Smith fans at the Atlanta Motor Speedway this Sunday. The 19-year-old from little bitty Talking Rock, Georgia, will be behind the wheel. Now, not for the main NASCAR race, which is the Folds of Honor Quick Trip 500, but the lower racing series, the Camping World Truck Series. And Chandler Smith, well, he's already visited the winner's circle in his last race earlier this month. Here's a call from Fox Sports 1. Final lap in Las Vegas, coming through turn four. Chandler Smith out front, looking for his third career win, and he has done it. Chandler Smith in Las Vegas. He's driving like my producer, Daniel. The truck series is seen as a step toward driving for the main series. Good luck, Chandler. Go get him. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. You know, there was an article published earlier in the year that I read from Ms. Magazine, which cited this. I'm going to quote them. The United States continues to lag behind nearly all established democracies in the percentage of women elected to office. And as of January 2022, the U.S. is tied at 72 with Egypt and the Philippines and ranked just ahead of El Salvador and Pakistan in terms of women in elected office. Now, we know there's been progress, right, in terms of women holding elected office. But when you start dissecting the big numbers for women overall, there's still a vast disparity in representation as it relates to ethnicity and race. And, of course, that's at the federal, state, and local levels. So there's a question. How does this disparity affect our nation's state of democracy? Well, it's one of many things I'll discuss with my next guest, Georgia Democratic Congresswoman Nakima Williams. Congresswoman Williams, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Happy to be here today, Rose. And happy Women's History Month. Yeah, we got a lot of work to do so that we can really be happy and free and celebrating all of our rights, Rose. I got work to do up here in Washington. Can you finish it in 18 minutes? Because that's, that's 18 minutes. That just means I'm going to have to come back so we can continue the conversation. I want to begin, and I know it's a very, it's a big, broad assessment, but I wanted to start with this because I, and I was talking to a friend about this and, and it was a male and he's like, I don't think it's a fair question, but. What does he know? I wanted to talk about the correlation between the strength of our nation's democracy and the importance of gender and racial equity. There's a correlation. So there. there there's a huge correlation. If you've listened to the Biden Harris administration, they've centered everything around equity. And if anything we've seen throughout the pandemic is the spotlight that all of the disparities have been shined on that have already existed. But when you think about people who had job losses during the pandemic, people who've re-entered the workforce, women are still disproportionately impacted. And even at some point where economists have been calling it a a she session Mm -hmm. instead of a recession. And so, I mean, I look at the way that we're addressing these issues here in Congress, even today, Rose, On the floor of the United States Congress, I had to speak up about what is professional hair in this country? What can, Rose, do you know that there are places you can be fired for wearing your hair the way that it is right now? I understand that everybody doesn't dig the locks. I'm aware of that. Well, I'm I'm trying to be nice. Like it. I I know. Listen, let me tell you something. Let's get real for a second. How they wear their hair. Let's get real. I want to be very clear about this and transparent. I remember going to an interview for a television job. This is early in my career as a journalist. The person told me I needed a nose job and I couldn't keep my locks. Wow. 
Well, Rose, I was told as a state senator, so you know, it wasn't that long ago, I had my braids because it gets, the days get long and I needed some maintenance done. And I, I had my braids and I got the braids taken out. And she came up to me and thought she was complimenting me and said, wow, your hair looks so much better like that. You know, I had my little silk press, got my braids taken out. <laughs> and she said, you should wear it like that more often. It looks more professional. Will you describe and who she was, the what with the race? Um, and an older white woman serving. She is no longer serving in the legislature, but she was two years ago when I was serving in the legislature. And she told me that I looked more professional. And so I was proud to stand on the House of Representatives today with the board behind me with my hair and Senegalese twist in every style you can imagine. And I said, this is professional hair because this is something that women are still dealing with. And if it were not for the black woman in Congress pushing this, this would not have passed the house today. So the our lived experiences that we bring to the table is how we continue to shape this democracy, how we continue to push to make sure that we can bring our authentic selves to jobs so that you don't have to get a nose job to do your job, Rose. Well, I was gonna get one anyway, so <laughs> I like my nose, shoot. Um, <laughs> So in other words, because there was another piece that I read that the title was big and bold, democracy without women is impossible. Truth in that statement, I shouldn't have to ask you that, but take it further. And it is it is impossible. You look at what we're dealing with in Georgia with the voter suppression and how um, the numbers that we've seen and we continue to talk about black women being the back. Um, bone of the Democratic Party and how we continue to lift up half the sky. And then I think about like Atlanta's history and black leaders, women leaders like Dorothy Bolden, Mm -hmm. who was she started the domestic workers movement. Mm -hmm. But while she was also advocating and taking care of other people's families in their homes, she is was is essential to how we got transit um, connected to some of our black communities in Atlanta. And then um, that just the history of that and her legacy in Atlanta and how it continues to shape what we're dealing with now with like transit down on Campbellton Road in Southwest Atlanta. And I just think about the legacy and the people who have continued to push and get us to where we are now. And so I know that I have so much work to do. For our listeners not familiar with your backstory, how did you get into politics and why did you want to? So I've, I've kind of, my husband calls me the Lorax. He's like, if someone needs speaking for, Nakima will speak for them. And so he calls me the Lorax, but I've always been the person who was looking out for other people. I started um, with the local Young Democratic Party and like all volunteer positions, but I was an advocate and I worked at Planned Parenthood Southeast for 10 years as the vice president of public policy. Mm -hmm. I worked with the National Domestic Workers Alliance, advancing workers' rights, women of colors, workers' rights in this country. And I, opportunities met the, the, moment and I was there to make sure that I could step up and continue to serve my community. I served in the state Senate and now I am in the United States Congress representing the fighting fifth. But was there a peg? Was there something and it could be through your family? Was there an individual? Was there an influence? Was it I'm imagining and I could be wrong. Was there a spark there somewhere? I had to begin from somewhere. Was it innate so for I, you just kept going and going? Rural Alabama Rose. I know where you're from. Like, say that, you know, like I make things political, but my mere existence as a black woman is political in this country. I remember in ninth grade coming home and I was like, mom, my auntie Authorina is in my Alabama history book in ninth grade. And I was reading about my aunt Authorine Lucy, who just passed away two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. She integrated the university of Alabama Mm -hmm. and she stood there and made it so that the doors are open at that university now for people of all color, but she was expelled after just three days because she, they couldn't keep her safe. And because of the violence that erupted on campus, but Thurgood Marshall was her attorney. They took it to the the Alabama federal courts. And so I know that I have a legacy to uphold and I come from a fighting spirit, Rose. And so I'm going to continue fighting for my people that I serve in the fifth district. What has been that Remember what has been the piece of information, a conversation that you had with authoring Lucy Foster that will remain with you. What did she tell you about fighting? So 
I remember going to visit her just at the end of January because I wanted to take, I have a six-year-old son, Carter, and like he needs to know his family. And we went and visited um, with her and she was able to love on him just a few weeks before she passed. And talking with her and I asked like, knowing that people were trying to kill you just for getting an education or trying to get an education, what made you keep going? And she's like, when you're afraid, do it anyway. You gotta keep going. And I have had moments where it wasn't always comfortable to speak up. It's not always comfortable to keep going, but I know that there are so many people counting on me. And so those words stick with me, do it anyway. And those are the moments that you're often needed most when it isn't comfortable, because I've been given a lot of privilege in this life, even as a black woman from the South. And so I know that I have an obligation to continue this work because a lot of people are counting on me to be their voice, even when they don't realize it. Well, to that notion, because you said there's so much more work that needs to be done. What can you and or do you feel is your 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 role, your duty as an elected official, as a woman, woman? identifies as a woman of color, to elevate the voices. A black woman. A black woman, okay. Who create more opportunities for women, regardless of political affiliation or ideology or whatever. But you see yourself as having a duty to help elevate the voices and, and get more women involved in politics? Do you see that as a duty for you? Absolutely. And I know we said this isn't partisan, but I'm also the first black woman to chair the Democratic Party of Georgia. Mm -hmm. And so that is a great responsibility because I was told when I was running for that position that Georgia wasn't ready for a black woman to be chair. And now I think Georgia's ready for a black woman to be governor. I can come back and have another conversation about that part. But I, I mean, we have come such a long way, but we still have work to do. I look at the child tax credit that we just passed mm -hmm. that literally cut childhood poverty in half in this country. And now Republicans wouldn't renew it. So I know that I have to continue fighting. I grew up in poverty in this country, grew up in a home with no indoor plumbing and no running water. So I know that I have an obligation to continue to push and open doors for people. Right now, Atlanta has the largest racial wealth gap in the country. I serve on the Influential House Financial Services Committee. So I have an opportunity to make changes in this country when it comes to the disproportionate student loan debt that Black borrowers have. And so I'm, I'm here to do the work, Rose. After this segment, I'm going to have a conversation with a Morehouse School of Medicine uh, doctor and professor, and we're going to talk about the maternal mortality, health equity issue here. And when you think about all of those, and you mentioned this coming into the program, how the pandemic has amplified or highlighted all these existing disparities and inequities, and I don't know why folks act like they didn't know it before, but whatever, they've been there. Uh, can you get much of accomplished in Congress to address some of these issues? Can y'all, because let's be clear, y'all don't, y'all ain't getting along right now. <laughs> y'all ain't, ain't, ain't getting along and okay, that happens. But if we're talking about these issues that are important to you for women and especially black women, what can you get done, Congresswoman Williams? So just this year or just last week in the omnibus budget that we passed, I got $94 million in research dollars for the Endometriosis Research Foundation. I suffer from endometriosis. I know the discrepancies in Black women mm -hmm. when it comes to our health care and how I was told that maybe I'm exaggerating the pain. And I had to go from several doctors until I got a doctor that actually diagnosed me and figured out what was going on with me each month. And then today, Rose, I'm actually leaving this conversation with you. And I'm going to the White House for a bill signing with President Biden on the John Lewis National Institution of Research Endowment Revitalization Act, which gives money and eligibility to research institutions like Morehouse School of Medicine that serve minority communities. So Morehouse School of Medicine is going to benefit from this. And I'm going to be at the White House in just about an hour for the bill signing to get these funds back to our institutions. Health, obviously, is important. You mentioned education as with student loans. What else for you, Congresswoman, is at that top of the list when it relates, when it comes to the state of black women in this nation? Affordable housing, Rose. Affordable housing is at the top of that list. Right now, we we have housing available in Atlanta, but is it desirable and is it affordable? I remember a while ago, you and I had this conversation and you were saying that you might have to move somewhere else because of your rent prices. And so, Rose, there <laughs> Telling is my business. 
we had we're gonna be real rose that we had to, well i say it all the time i'm be living out there and the, you know way past all right never mind we want to keep you here in the city <laughs> we want to keep you here we got to do something about this and on the financial services committee housing is under my jurisdiction and i'm working with the city of atlanta with our new hud secretary secretary marcia fudge to continue to bring these resources back to the people that need them most right here in my district as we wrap up i want to circle back to the beginning of this conversation, which is the current state of our nation's democracy. And we, we've we had so many conversations looking back to January 6th of last year. I asked so many people about this and we asked callers, you know, who called into the program and we said, you know, are you concerned about the state of our, of our nation's democracy? Is it fractured? Is it frazzled? Are we on the rebound since January 6th? Your, your viewpoint on all of that. Our democracy is fragile and it, I think it was just highlighted on January 6th, but it has been in this state. But I just remember the words of John Lewis that our fight is not of a day, a month, or a year. This is the fight of a lifetime. And so this is never about just one election cycle. We don't have the bills passed right now in the Senate, but I haven't given up, Rose. I'm continuing to fight for voting rights in this country, regardless of your zip code, regardless of your bank account. We have work to do, and I'm here to do it. I got to get your thoughts on this because obviously it is the the headline, the global headline. You think about the situation in Ukraine and depending on whom you ask and some of your fellow lawmakers will have a difference of opinion here. The path that the United States is on right now in terms of focusing on, you know, some of the non-military, obviously, personnel going in, um, the sanctions, what have you. Is this the right path that you feel for now? I feel like we are on the right path. We have an obligation to look out for civilians that are being caught up in this crossfire. And so whatever we can do to make sure that we're putting the pressure on the Russian government by on the financial pressure, while also making sure that we're looking out for Ukrainian people who are losing their lives in this unprovoked war, we have an obligation to do that. Well, you say an obligation, but what does that look like? So we're continuing like the sanctions that we have increased, the not buying Russian um, oil, making sure that we're continuing the financial pressures. We have a lot of things that we can do and we have to continue down that path because they're right now, innocent lives are being taken. And I know you've seen the black and brown people trying to cross the border who have not been given the same access that other Europeans have. And so we have an obligation to make sure that we are looking out for migrants, for people who are leaving the country and, and seek of safety. And we are doing that on all sides of this here in the U.S. Are we sure and do we have, I know there's been a lot of concerns about what's actually being reported and what's the truth here. Do we know that black and brown folks, might have been some African nationals living in Ukraine, they are, they have been or at one point were denied access into neighboring nations at the border? Do we know that to be true, Congressman so I, I don't have the intel to tell whether it is happening or not happening, but what I do know is that it should not be happening. And, and so I just wrote a letter to the administration last week affirming that and my support that we should make sure that we are making getting immigrants who are migrants who are black and brown who have been purported to be stuck at the border, that we are making sure that they have the same access that other people have who are trying to flee Ukraine. I just wrote that letter last week to the administration. Nakima Williams represents Georgia's 5th Congressional District, the U.S. House. Representative Williams, as always, thank you so much for taking the time. Good conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. Love your hair, by the way. <laughs> However I since, choose to since wear. Since we started talking about hair. <laughs> thank you. And Closer Look continues now from WABE, Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. So, what have you been doing the last two years? Remember now, COVID restrictions and lockdowns led to sheltering in place and limited physical contact with others. I know, that was tough. Among the hardest hit of our population, 
our senior community. Even before the pandemic, we know that research suggested that factors such as living alone, a decline in physical activity, and of course illness all contributed to seniors suffering from social isolation. Now here in Atlanta, a group of senior women have created quite a bond that actually developed during the pandemic. Closer Look producer LaShawn Hudson has more on the Nature Girls. Okay, Nature Girls, let's gather. It's all hugs, huge laughs, and big wide smiles when this group of women get together to enjoy nature. The place, the Cascade Nature Preserve, they call themselves the Nature Girls. Cecilia Houston Torrance is the founder and coordinator of Nature Girls. Cecilia says getting outside was just the relief she needed. It wasn't, I didn't actually come up with the idea. I just started doing it. It was just like, okay, I know I had to get out of the house. I um, basically had an anxiety attack one day, and I'm like, okay, I can't breathe. Let me go outside. As soon as I went outside and walked around my backyard, I felt better. I'm like, maybe I need to start getting out walking more. My friend Sonia Young lives right there across the street. She said, come to the Cascade Springs Nature Preserve. We walk over there sometime. So I came, me and Donna Watson came, it was April 15th, 2020. We came out here, we walked, we said, I can't believe this is here. I passed by this place so many times, it had never been in here. It's two years that the Nature Girls have been meeting at the Cascade Springs Nature Preserve. This 135-acre preserve is nestled in southwest Atlanta and is one of the oldest forests inside the city limits. Cecilia says that even though she's lived near the preserve, she had never bothered to explore its sacred beauty until the day she walked the trail with a friend. They said people came down in here to do all kind of unsavory things, so I just never came. So when I came, I fell in love with it. When I saw the beautiful running water and um, all the trees, it was springtime then, so we had lots of trees. I um, fell in love with it. The next day, there was three people, next thing four, five, six. The group usually gathers Monday through Friday at 9 a.m. each morning to walk between two to three miles. The Nature Girls range in age from early 60s to their mid-80s. Houston says all women are welcome, and the group is diverse and very civically engaged. Every woman in here has a story. Every woman in here has been accomplished in their careers, from uh, nursing to corporate, running foundations. We got a little bit of everything in here. So um, they're all accomplished women. Majority of us are uh, retired. We have a couple that are still working, but most of us are retired now. Still civically involved. During the last election cycle, we had all the candidates come and uh, talk to the nature girls and hear their, you know, bring their stories to us. Um, we went to vote together in 2020. We went out and voted together. We all went down to Phillips Arena and voted. Um, we had shirts that said November 3rd matters, and then we had some that said January 5th matters. And when people see us with these shirts on, they said, what does that mean? We said, you got to vote. So we encourage people to vote. So um, we're doing our civic duty as well. Nature Girls member Materia Williams is an ordained minister. She lives two blocks from the preserve. I stumbled up on it, and for me, it was being with women uh, who had purpose, because we've seen candidates here. We've had issues with break-ins, uh, lighting, and cameras. We would work as a force to get things corrected. We feel safe. We know that we are being healthy. Uh, when we're walking, that is cardio. But you know what I like about it? You know how they say some women are just catty or messy. You don't have that in the Nature Girls. We support each other, we uplift rather than bring down. Ahead of each hike, Williams often leads the group in prayer, and then they split up into groups. We have the strollers, and they walk very slow. We have the explorers. They walk on the flat at the pace that they want to walk. And then we have the mountaineers. We go to the mountaintop. We walk up and down and up and down. 
and nobody cares who's doing what. We just want to be fulfilled where we feel comfortable. Something as simple as walking is crucial for those in the Nature Girls age group, and especially these last two years, says Dr. Charlotte Grayson. She's with the Georgia Physicians Group of Fayetteville. The pandemic has been really isolating for patients of all ages, but especially for our elderly patients who have, you know, in general been very afraid of, you know, contracting coronavirus or ending up in the hospital. And so they have been isolating themselves even more. And because of the isolation, we're seeing a lot of anxiety. We're starting to see a good bit of depression. Um, it's starting to affect patients physically as well. Nature Girls member Susan Ross agrees. We always go to the waterfall. There's a peaceful and healing nature to the waters flowing. It's been it's been a wonderful thing. I mean, you know, I've lost weight doing it. I have gotten more physically fit. Um, but most of all, I had a way during the pandemic of not being isolated or depressed, you know, because you're interacting with people. And that's, that's very important uh, when you're facing something like a pandemic. You know, especially something that is that people my age are more subject to being uh, hurt by. While the question remains, if 2022 marks the end of the pandemic, we do know this. The Nature Girls say they will continue to walk for health reasons and for the joy of sisterhood. For a closer look, I'm LaShawn Hudson. By the way, the Nature Girls have a pretty cool-looking hooded sweatshirt. I gotta get one. I'll get some for the team as well, but nice feature. To see them, visit our webpage, wabe.org slash closer look. We're back in a moment. And you're listening to WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. A recent grant to Atlanta's Morehouse School of Medicine will help focus on narrowing what we know as the maternal health equity gap. And funding will be provided by the America Group Foundation. Now, there's quite a bit to cover regarding this topic, but we're going to try. Joining me now is Dr. Natalie Hernandez, Assistant Professor at Community for the Community Health and Preventive Medicine and Interim Director for the Center for Maternal, maternal Health Equity all at the Morehouse School of Medicine. She's very busy. Dr. Hernandez, it's been some time. Welcome back to the program. It's good to see you, Rose. How are you? <laughs> After these last two years, I'm just, I'm happy to be alive. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> you know, Dr. Hernandez, before we get into our conversation, because I want to start by defining some terms for our listeners, because they'll hear this throughout the segment. First, when we talk about maternal health in general, what's the definition of that? Yeah, well, the, the definition is pretty broad. Um, you know, it's the health of a woman through her perinatal. So, um, you know, from when she's pregnant all the way through the postpartum period, because people tend to think maternal health just means the health of a woman while she's pregnant. But we act, what we actually know is that a lot of the maternal deaths happen after a woman gives birth. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about addressing the maternal health equity gap, now we get a little bit more focus. Tell our listeners what, what, the, what we're going to hear, what they're going to hear that we talk about. Yeah, absolutely. So according to the CDC, every year about 700 to 800 women die um, as a result of pregnancy or delivery complications. But when we talk about the gap, the rate for black women in particular is two to three times higher than the rate of white women. And so we know that there are a lot of issues that need to be addressed. And through this grant funding that um, you spoke about, that's what we're trying to do. I'm going to pause for a second because I have an email from a listener who says that she spoke about this with her OBGYN and was told that's not a real thing. Now, that's all that the email says. So I'm not sure where the listener is going, but have you heard that some people don't believe there's actually a maternal mortality rate disparity among races of women and ethnicity? You Are there people out there that don't believe that? Even in your, surely not, in your field? Well, in, in our field, yes, because, you know, 
you know, oftentimes, you know, you hear about 700 to 800 women, and that doesn't seem like a lot, right? Because mm-hmm. it really is a rare event. But what's not rare and what has not happened for a very long time is the gaps between black and white women. Mm-hmm. Um, black and white disparities and maternal death have existed since the beginning of the collection of data. In 1915, the maternal mortality ratio for black mothers was almost two times that of white moms. And as we get since the early 1970s, black mothers have had had the same rates that we have today. So for a hundred years, we have not reduced inequities between black and white mothers um, when it comes to maternal deaths. And it's a lot to unpack, right? Because I mean, it, it, it goes deeper than just not having access to care. I was just about to ask you that. Mm -hmm. Is that at the top of the list? It's just something simple as access to care. But we also know the story of Serena Williams, who we know has access to health care, but almost died while giving birth and and throughout the whole her whole pregnancy. And people think, well, she surely has great health care and had great access. But there she still was part of this group when we talk about this. So what are the other factors here? Can we can we pinpoint them? Yeah, there's always a lot to blame on mothers and the action she has to take rather than what the scientific evidence is proving, right? So you mentioned Serena Williams. She's not the only one. Mm -hmm. Black mothers who are college-educated fare worse than women of all other races who never finished high school. Obese women, because the other thing people say, well, you know, Black women tend to be, you know, have a lot of chronic diseases or have higher rates of obesity, but obese women of all races still have better birth outcomes than black women who are of normal weight. Oh, well, maybe it's about income, you know, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, you know, it's about being rich or poor and maybe it's poor black women. Well, black women in the wealthiest neighborhoods still do mm-hmm. worse than white women in the poorest ones. Oh, care. You mentioned care rows, right? Mm-hmm. Even black mm-hmm. moms who initiate prenatal care in the first trimester still had higher rates of infant mortality than non-Hispanic white women. So there's there's a lot to unpack mm-hmm. when we're talking about maternal deaths. And that's something that we're trying to understand and alleviate and mitigate at Morehouse School of Medicine. Rather, what we're finding out and what research is pointing to is that structural racism is the main culprit. And racism cannot be understood as just an interpersonal bias because we see a lot of trainings that are going on that are doing implicit bias. It's just such a powerful social condition that has its roots in centuries long systems of oppression and devaluing of black women. And ultimately that's what it comes down to. Um, So that we at Morehouse School of Medicine are figuring ways to narrow that gap, as you mentioned, the the title of our funding Mm -hmm. that we received through diversifying the workforce to mitigate a lot of those structural racism components that currently exist in our healthcare system. Starting with the workforce, folks who look like me and you from our respective communities. Exactly. Let's go back a little bit. And for our listeners, the Center for Maternal Health Equity, you all haven't been around that long, have you? No, we haven't. And, you know, we were um, founded in response to the inequities that were happening in Georgia. And, you know, I talked about national figures, but what a lot of people don't know, too, is that Georgia ranks almost last um, when it comes to maternal health. And we have one of the highest maternal death rates Mm -hmm. in the country. Now, in the last two years, we see a lot of investment and things happening that are, uh, you know, helping to mitigate a lot of those inequities, including the Center for Maternal Health Equity. Mm -hmm. We were established in 2019 with funding from the Georgia legislator to address those inequities and maternal deaths. And, you know, who better than a historically black college to be able to really understand those factors and do it in ways that are culturally and patient centered? Um, Because we know that people have good approaches and really care about it. But we have been doing this work for nearly 50 years at Morehouse School of Medicine. Mm -hmm. And I believe that's why it was critical for the state to really invest in the work that we're doing. Um, And we were founded right before the pandemic and started doing this work in the middle of a pandemic, Mm -hmm. but have seen immediate impacts of the work that we're doing. 
And with this funding from the Amerigroup Foundation, which is a little bit over, well, almost $2 million, but $1.725 million, uh, you all will focus on training, that inequity gap in training, Mm -hmm. but you're also going to reach out to mothers, pregnant parenting, black women and their families. It's a, it's, it's just not, it's not just one approach. It's a multi approach here. It's just what it sounds like. Absolutely, Rose. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're seeing our work in three different ways, right? Because we, of course, believe in diversifying the workforce, Mm -hmm. but we, you know, we can't do that alone. And it's going to take a while for that to happen because out of the 155 accredited medical schools, four HBCUs are the ones that are producing the most black doctors. And so, you know, it's going to take a while to increase the number or diversify the number of black doctors. But what we can do is do training with other racial and ethnic groups around respectful maternity care. So not just understanding implicit bias, but ensuring that no matter what happens, that birthing populations are respected. Um, And our trainings are are really unique in how we do that because we think about intersections of black populations. Everyone (laughs) wants to focus just on black women, but we know black women are diverse and have diverse sexual orientations and diverse lived experiences. And so our respectful maternity care training will approach all of these different intersections. Additionally, um, integrating the workforce, right? So um, right now, and the NPR did an article about this and how patient navigators have been able to reduce inequities in cancer. Mm -hmm. And so we're taking a play that has worked in cancer and instituting that at Morehouse School of Medicine, not only training birthing populations to do this work and meet the unmet social needs of black birthing populations, but integrating them in systems of care, making sure that we're also providing opportunities for for birthing populations to also have jobs. Um, Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask, because I want to make sure that we're letting our listeners know you all aren't just going to focus, you won't just focus on this, the Atlanta urban area. There's a rural maternal health initiative in in this as well. Yeah, absolutely. And our rural communities have suffered really the brunt of a lot of what's going on because we've had, you know, half of our counties in the state of Georgia lack a maternity care provider. And so some of our birthing populations are traveling an, an hour to two hours for care. And at that point, if you're in an emergency situation, it's not gonna look good for you, right? Um, and so how do we, um, you know, train providers um, and, and train lay people to be in these areas to mitigate these inequities. And so we're actually establishing, I think the second or third um, OBGYN rural residency program in the country. And what's gonna make ours stand apart from others is that usually in residency, um, people rotate into a rural Mm -hmm. community for about 20% of the time. It's gonna be the opposite for our population. Our residents will be in rural communities Mm -hmm. most of the time and rotate 20% at our safety net setting where in which our providers practice, which is at Grady. Um, so again, really thinking innovatively about solutions and knowing the community. You know, we, again, have been doing this work for a long time. Yeah, you have. And, and we yeah. have that trust and rapport with our community. But I want to make sure I heard you correctly. You said, because Georgia has 159 counties, I believe. You said half? Half. Half do not have a maternity um, OB or OB provider. It's it's we we were considered a maternity desert in the state of Georgia. We have maternity deserts, and um, it's unconscionable. It's unconscionable to have that. And so we need to um, make things attractive for people to practice. And that's again thinking outside of the box. How are we training our providers um, to want to stay in these communities? And you know, it's 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 a it's a it is a crisis as as people have deemed it. We have a maternal mortality crisis. Um, that's why when people say, "Well, I don't believe this is happening," mm-hmm. it's happening. And with COVID in the mix, you know, and we're starting to review cases because I sit on the maternal mortality review committee for the state of Georgia. We're going to see contributors of death that have been caused by COVID nineteen. But your program, you mentioned, think outside the box training. 
I understand the program will train doulas yes. as part of this as well. Yes. Yeah, this is our patient navigator program, again, which makes it really unique. Um, usually, um, patient navigators are nurses or some type of medical provider. But we felt that we needed to invest in our own communities because our communities have the solutions to the issues that are, are existing. And so providing opportunities for community members to be trained as doulas, um, they'll be trained as community health workers, mm -hmm. which Morehouse School of Medicine has had a longstanding program of community health workers, and then learn a lot about clinical care coordination. So that way, our lay navigators are integrated really into these um, clinical care teams to alleviate you know what's happening around maternal deaths and severe maternal morbidity because a lot of attention is mm -hmm. paid on the deaths but a lot of women live with these comorbidities after they give birth um, for a while i have a listener who says since georgia is high as far as mortality rates can we find out or can we have extensive research on where the most deaths are located do we have that information we have some of that information. We can't pinpoint it down to a county, again, because with deaths, the numbers are so small that you can be able to pinpoint where that exactly happened. Um, but um, we do have a lot of data on severe maternal morbidity. Um, and for every death, there are about 50,000 severe maternal morbidity cases. And so through severe maternal morbidity, we can see where mm. those areas are that need a lot of attention and including our urban areas. It's about a 50-50 split where it's not more is happening in rural. It's just that there are less resources available for those in the rural communities as compared to, let's say, Atlanta or mm -hmm. other urban centers in the state of Georgia. The voice you hear is Dr. Natalie Hernandez. She's assistant professor at Community Health and Preventive Medicine and also the executive director. Our apologies, we referred to you as the interim director. We're going to drop that. You're the executive director <laughs> for the Center for Maternal Health Equity all at the Morehouse School of Medicine. I have some more questions too from listeners who say, for women who do not have health care, where do they begin? Where do they turn to even start the process of finding a, a, a OBGYN to help them along the way or a provider? I know that's, yeah, that's, are, a, that's, a, that's, a lot, that's a lot of policy questions in there. That's a lot of policy questions. But, you know, our, our state, you know, is making some strides, you know. Um, you know, this was a priority in, in Governor Kemp's state of the, you know, of the, of the state address mm -hmm. where investments are being made in maternal health. Um, and we, we have Medicaid, you know, when you're pregnant, you have access to Medicaid. And in the last session, we were able to pass, um, you know, postpartum Medicaid extension. So usually a woman would lose her Medicaid after a couple of weeks. And now mm -hmm. women have that mm -hmm. until six months. Um, and so there are a lot of resources. There are a lot of great community-based organizations where sometimes women can't qualify for Medicaid, but health insurance is really expensive. And so then what do you do if you fit if you fit in that gap? Um, you know, there are a lot of organizations that are enrolling women into mm -hmm. the Affordable Care Act and different types of resources that exist for women um, in birthing populations. So there is information out there, I would say, you know, just connecting with your local organizations and amazing organizations that we have here, like Healthy Mothers, Healthy Babies mm -hmm. Coalition of Georgia, the Center for Black Women's Wellness, um, just a host. I mean, we're blessed in Georgia to have the resources that we have. I have another a question from a listener who says, what about immigrant women and, and migrant women who are working in some of these farms? That I, And we've done so many discussions on that as well. Listen, we know that this is not something that we can legislate our way out of. It's going mm -hmm. to take a holistic approach after I hear what you say and everybody else says. What is the metric then or the metrics that we use to determine, hey, the United States is finally, you know, we're, we're no longer at this high level of maternal mortality. Death rates here, it could take five to ten years to see just how far we've come. You know, what's the process here in, in determining that? Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, someone brought up about immigrant groups and stuff. And we are, you know, as immigrant groups start to assimilate, we are seeing um, an increase in, in death rates for these populations as well. 
um, particularly with Latinx populations, you know, we have such a huge um, and growing population in the state of Georgia mm -hmm. that are making, you know, Georgia its home and have made Georgia its home for a very long time. Um, and through maternal mortality review committees, we're starting to see those numbers increase even among the Latinx population and nationally, we're seeing some of these increases as well. Um, you know, at Morehouse School of Medicine, we don't discriminate. Yes, you know, we focus on black birthing populations, mm -hmm. but the Center for Maternal Health Equity focuses on all underserved and vulnerable populations, or as I like to say, populations that have been placed at risk, mm -hmm. because I hate that terminology, vulnerable, because right. it just assumes, you know, a couple of things when it's the systems that have been put our populations at risk. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so, which goes back to that, which goes back to that first uh, listener that emailed me that said, you know, they had a conversation with a health provider who said that they didn't really believe all the statistics around. That still blows my mind, the maternal mortality rate. I just, just keeping it real. I can't believe that a, somebody actually says, oh, that's not true. Uh, as, yeah. we, as we wrap up, Dr. Hernandez, I don't think I've ever asked you this uh why do you do this work? You've been doing this work for a long time. What's, yeah. your, what's your backstory? You got about a minute 10 to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Rose, I'm from the boogie down Bronx. Uh -oh. you know? <laughs> I am an Afro-Latina from the Bronx. And I saw this happen to my own family members. This is, this is work that's personal to me. Mm -hmm. And being in the field of health disparities research was something that I came across. My name, Natalie, actually means birth, natal. Um, and, you know, sometimes I feel like this was this was just from God for me to be able to do this work. I love working in and with communities. It's my community that I want to accomplish and advance maternal health equity. I am a mother of two, and my sister is a survivor of preeclampsia. And so I witnessed firsthand how they treated her in the hospital um, and how, you know, she struggled for a very long time. I witnessed this every single day in the South Bronx, you know, which is the poorest county in the United States. And so this work is personal and I will continue to do it whether I get paid or not. You know, this is not something I'm getting rich off of. It's something that I'm very passionate about. I understand that passion. Dr. Natalie Hernandez, Assistant Professor in Community Health and Preventive Medicine, Executive Director for the Center for Maternal, Maternal Health Equity, all at the Morehouse School of Medicine. Dr. Hernandez, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you all for the work you're doing to help others. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. It was a pleasure. Shout out Take to care. the Bronx. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead. Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razale, our producers. Kevin Rinker, he's our engineer. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on this program or any other. Send me an email rose at wabe.org by the way check out our new website wabe.org stay tuned to 90.1 wabe atlanta i'm rose scott hi it's terry gross the host of fresh air we bring you in-depth long-form interviews with actors directors musicians authors journalists and more Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org slash election 2024.